This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's show is being recorded live at the Sydney Simeon Network annual dinner. The Simeon Network is a national network of Christians in academia. Today's big question, how does the story end? We're asking this question today to Dr. Greg Clark. Greg is currently a global Bible advocacy consultant at British and Foreign Bible Society, and he was formerly CEO of the Bible Society in Australia, and also a founding director of the Centre for Public Christianity. His research was in eschatology, apocalypse, and modern fiction, and he joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Greg Clark. So welcome, Greg. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Great to be here, Robert. So, Greg, so what does a global Bible advocacy consultant do? It's it's a nice long title. (laughs) It's a very long title, yeah. Yes, it's basically thinking about uh, how you can communicate the Bible in the public square, the public spaces, all over the world. Right. So not, not so much through the churches, but what does it look like when you're trying to communicate the teachings of the Bible outside of the churches, in the media, in the universities, in the, the kind of public spaces where people might encounter it. Right. So it's a piece I'm doing for the British Bible Society to build a strategy for them to do that over the next 10 years. Terrific. Okay. Yeah. So, and you think the Bible's obviously worth advocating for? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everywhere you go and I've had great opportunities in the jobs I've had to look around the world and and see how different societies operate and everywhere that the Bible has gone it has had a huge impact it's never a book that just positive impact or it's had I would say primarily positive impacts with some caveats right Uh, here and there there's a lot needs to be answered for in the way that uh uh, normally political leaders have utilised the Bible for their causes and they're still doing it today. Yep. Um, we, we see it on the front page of the paper um, in Australia, in the US, all over the world, the Bible is still misused to support whatever cause you happen to be uh, up for at that Advocate. point. Yeah. Yep. But, um, but by and large, when the Bible comes to a culture, it's a transformative force for good at every level, sort of individual, family, community society structures, you can see over time the kind of leavening impact of the teachings of Jesus and the entire Bible. Right. So that's, that's an amazing thing to that's, see. That's why it's worth advocating for from your perspective. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Okay, terrific. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're asking Dr. Greg Clark about how it, the story ends. So Greg, our smaller questions to you are about the 1916 Danish silent film the End of the World, oh, which is possibly the world's first apocalyptic movie. Now, have you ever seen the film? That I have not seen okay, and right. not, not heard either, actually. Okay, oh, right. No, no. Yes. I hadn't heard of it until this week either. So, anyway, um, there are two questions, both multiple choice. Okay, question one. In the 1916 silent Danish film, The End of the World, what was going to destroy the world? Was it A, an alien invasion, B, a giant comet, C, a mutated virus which kills cereal crops and other grasses causing famine, or was it D, a zombie apocalypse? Mm, zombie apocalypse is probably a little bit too contemporary. <laughs> yeah, um, right. It's a good one to I, say. I think given the trope that is out there in so many different kind of visions of the end, I'm going to go with the comet, B. Was it B? It was. B. The answer hey. was B, yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Why not, yeah. Well, apparently the film attracted a huge audience because of fears generated due to the passing of Halley's Comet six years earlier, 
as well as the ongoing turbulence and unrest of World War I. Okay, question two. You're doing well here, Greg. Question two. How did the story in the film end? Was it A, the comet came and destroyed the Earth and everyone dies? Was it B, a crack team of scientists fly a bomb into the comet which destroys it before it hits the Earth and thus saves the world? Was it C, the comet hits the Earth and just about everyone dies except for a man and his woman? Or was it D, despite the dire warning, scientists did some different calculations and realised that the comet was going to miss the Earth and everyone was safe, making the movie rather anticlimactic? Hmm. Well, it's not a popular movie as far as I can tell, so it could have, <laughs> a, could have a, an anticlimactic ending. Could have. Um, I'm going to go with um, A, that they just managed to blow it up and that was the end of it. Well, that wasn't actually A. Oh. A was B was blowing oh, it up. Oh, B was. Okay, yes. I'm going with B. <laughs> okay, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, so no, it wasn't okay. A or B. But the answer was actually C. The comet hit the earth. Just about everyone dies except for a man and his woman um, and they, were, they lived sort of happily. I don't know if they lived happily. Well, <laughs> they seemed to be happy. They were happy at the end of the film when everything else had died. Well, that sets yeah. it up for a sequel, I guess. Yes. It may not have been made. It does. Anyway, Greg, the end of this story is a good one for you because you passed. You got one of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. <laughs> so, so, Greg, you have a bit of a research interest in the ending of the world. Uh, and this started particularly from your honours thesis in English literature. So can you mm. tell us what were you researching there? When I was working on um, modern literature, um, and that was my area of great interest, mm-hmm. um, I had a wonderful um, lecturer um, at New South Wales University, uh, Peter Alexander. And as I read it under his sort of guidance, I came to see that death and dying was a really important part of the storytelling in modern literature. And there were some novels that were just all about one person dying. The whole novel actually was about that person dying. And so I decided to look at three of these novels and think about why that was important in modern literature. And I sort of came to the view that the process of dying was a sort of metaphor or technically a metonym for the experience of the modern world, that people felt like they were in this state of dying and decay and their values that they'd relied on in the past had fallen away, the things that were solid were melting into air, there was a sense of the world passing, passing away, the world that they knew. And so that experience of dying was great, a great metaphor for what it was like to live as a, as a modern person. So I wrote a little thesis on that. Sure, yeah, so what, what fascinated you with death though? Yeah, I don't know really. I mean, I'm, I've had a fairly blessed life. Um, it was only last year, about a year ago, that my father died and that was really the first big experience of death in, in my, mm-hmm. my own family network. So I think it was probably uh, university days reflecting on the serious questions, the bigger questions bigger actually. Questions, yeah. And um, realising that, you know, the human journey had a very definite endpoint, and what did that mean? And so I think it was quite an intellectual exercise for me. Yeah. And I guess as life's gone on, it's become both an intellectual and a kind of personal exercise as you, you experience more suffering and you see it played out in the stories that people tell. Mm. So I think for me it was that intellectual journey. I, I, I had a, another wonderful teacher, and, and often I think it's these people that stand out to you that make the difference. But uh, his name was Bruce Smith. He was a classicist and a theologian. I remember talking to him in a university classroom once, and we got onto the topic of death. And he just said to as me, you do, as, as, you do. as you do, as you do. And he oh, and death. Yeah, 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 he was fairly serious. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he had a sort of resplendent way of speaking as well. And, um, and he, uh, as we've been talking for a while, he, he paused and he said, yes, well, I think you're very fortunate 
to be spending so much time reflecting on death now at a young age. And I was kind of <laughs> shocked by that. And so I think I thought, why? And, and okay, you're right. This is the sort of thing that is worth reflecting on, is mm. that where the human journey is going to go and where the end is. And so that all fed into sort of an interest. I, I want to say it's not a macabre interest either. Like <laughs> I'm right, not yeah. a, I don't visit graveyards <laughs> and I'm not a kind of gothic vampire type sure. person. But, but I do, I am fascinated by all of that. Yeah, yeah and have continued to be. So what did you discover then? And what, and what was the connection between ver these various novelists' understanding of death and perhaps our cultural context? Well, I think it's this sense that what used to be solid is no longer solid. That's the modern experience. That the idea that in Western tradition you received a set of values, a set of expectations about life, and they were predictable and solid, that was... I think, profoundly destroyed by the two world wars in the 20th century. And I'd say of any, any event, that those world wars were the key turning point in the, in the kind of broader psychology of, of human beings. And suddenly they felt that the things that were there wouldn't always be there. Mm. The sense of impermanence entered the kind of general psyche. And a lot of the writing from the end of the 19th century then through the wars period is, is very disturbed, it's disturbed storytelling. And, and it's partly because of this thinking that the human experience may not have a good end. It may not, we may not be able to trust in the future. We mm. may not, the world may not be going where we want it to go. And you get 1916, you know, apocalyptic movies that everything could possibly be destroyed. Yes. And as the, as the century went on, the actual means by which you can destroy things became more and more kind of obvious and physical. Mm. Bombs, uh, nu the nuclear threat. Yeah, the Cold um, War. The Cold War. So the idea that actually everything could be destroyed was now a physical possibility, not just a... A fantasy that people had mm. and so I think all of that really feeds into the way stories are told in that period of time I think it's changed since then in the 21st century which we might get onto later but but in that period of time there was that that real wrestle going on with whether we can actually trust the past or whether we have to accept that we now live in this kind of apocalyptic age so how has it changed now then well I think uh, the turn of the millennium is an interesting thing and in the history of of the thinking about this kind of area actually has a name, apocalypse theory, like thinking yeah. about how things end. That's really, that's really a, a sort of a it's genuine... A, it's a term, it's, it's an term. area, there's it a bunch of scholars who... You could be an expert who, in apocalypse theory. Yeah, yeah that's Fantastic. right, you, you, yeah. you get to work on that. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the change is, the, the turn of a millennium is often a point where things go really quite decadent and societies have a kind of, oh, it's all gonna, it's all gonna end or it's all about to change. Let's just party on, let's have a great time. And so you get this thing called the, excuse my French accent, fin de cycle, the end of the cycle, the end of the period, where people go, okay, that's finished, and now we're gonna do something else. And I think that happened uh, with the, uh, moving to the 21st century just as much as it did with the 20th. And people start to think differently about life. And there was actually a huge sense of optimism at the beginning of the year 2000. Remember the Y2K bug? It didn't happen. No. And the fact that the world wasn't destroyed, thanks probably to the work of computer scientists who, <laughs> who made it all okay for us, um, meant that suddenly there was an optimism. And uh, there was an economics writer, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a famous book called The End of History where he said, actually, from now on, we're just going to grow. Capitalism's going to spread around the world. Religions will take a back seat. Societies will improve. It was a very optimistic sense. And then the planes hit the Twin Towers. And 2001 meant that, that that period of kind of millennial optimism, optimism was 
very short-lived. And the Twin Towers experience threw us back into that apocalyptic age. Mm. But it also reminded us that religion matters. And I think ever since then, religion has been front page for uh, most societies around the world, actually. Um, you had Richard Dawkins came to the party saying, this is all a delusion. You had everyone reacting against Richard Dawkins saying, hang on, the world's still religious. Um, you had the spread of different religions around the world, the globalisation period in that, that first decade and a bit. So, so I think now we have a society, and I see this in Gen Y, who are quite open to spiritual things, mm. who are really interested in the realm of the uncanny or mm. um, the idea of the afterlife. Like the zombie movie that you mentioned is a great <laughs> example of people not wanting the end to be the end, that something might exist beyond that. Mm. And so we live in this quite religious time now, ironically, mm. that you might have thought that uh, religion was being put to bed, but that's just a tiny, noisy kind of portion of of people who are saying that. The rest of the world is saying, actually, we're awake to religion now and we're really interested to tease it all out. Now, your research didn't end with death, so to speak. You actually progressed to more thoroughly into eschatology or to end times, the, sort of the ending and the, and the reality of the world. So what did you discover in your research into eschatology and the end times? Okay, yeah, so, so in my doctoral work, I sort of expanded on that thinking. So eschatology, for those who, who don't know the term, it's the study of the last things. The eschaton is the sort of phrase for the final state of things in Greek. And traditionally it has sort of four parts to it. That You look at death, you look at heaven and hell, you look at, at judgment and justice and the world to come. So I was really fascinated by that, the driver that eschatology is for lots of other areas of thinking, including literature. You know, how is it that when people cast a vision for something, they're often describing to you the kind of final state you'd like to be in. Yeah. Or they're describing what justice would look like, you know. Or they're saying, if the enemies will be put down and the righteous will be lifted up in whatever term. And that might be in, say, environmental issues, which is the big kind of thinking at the moment, that, you know, the, there's an enemy, those who are causing environmental degradation, and there's the righteous warriors who have to fight the forces of evil to bring about at least something like the kind of heavenly state that we, uh, we want we want to see. So eschatology frames all those discussions. It's a kind of way of thinking about ideas that's mm. quite potent. So I wanted to test that at least in literature. So and what did you find? I found that, well, well as you know, a, a doctor of dissertation's pretty focused thing. <laughs> so yeah. what I did was a reading of an Australian novelist called Patrick White mm -hmm. um, and how Christian and Jewish eschatology informed his writing yeah. and his life. Um, and I used all this theory to apply to his work, yep. um, basically to argue that the missing, the missing link in understanding him was that he was deeply concerned about eschatological ideas. Yep. But, for example, he was someone who shunned public life by and large, but he went out and marched against nuclear arms. And that idea of, you know, the end of things was the thing that got him out the door to, to protest on, on public issues. So to what extent then do you think that fiction is an explanation to the ultimate ends of humanity? Well, we all understand ourselves as part of stories. Mm -hmm. I think the human, human capacity that we have that seems to be unique is to turn our everyday atomistic second-by-second second existence into an unfolding narrative yeah. and to understand ourselves as part of not just one story but part of lots of stories. story of our family, the story of the people we meet each day, the story of what happens to us um, and also part of some bigger story that's going on, whether it's just 
you know, I'm an Australian, so I'm part of the Australian story. Um, I love cricket, so whatever is happening in the cricket is part of my story, you know. Or an even bigger story that, you know, I believe the universe is going somewhere and I fit into that story in a particular place. Mm. And so for a Christian person, that's part of what it means to be a Christian is to place yourself in a story. Mm. I think the best stories are the ones where fiction and reality kind of connect to each other, where you can use all the tools of language, the power of description, the power of plotting, the power of character development to persuade people of the truth. Right. So, you know, fiction is not the same thing as history, but the best kind of history telling feels like fiction because it, it gets to you in the way that fiction gets to you. So is this connected to literary theory? Definitely. I mean... Um, uh, and the, sen a, the sense of an ending? Yes, yeah. I mean, um, one of the interesting uh, theorists that I spent some time studying and had a chance to meet as well is a um, Cambridge professor called Frank Commode. And um, he wrote a really influential book in the 60s called The Sense of an Ending. And in it, he plotted out the way in which literature follows this kind of shape where all stories need to have a beginning, a middle and an end or are playing with that structure. And at different points in literary history, we've expected different things from the story. So before the age of reason, we expected the story to wrap up within a kind of metaphysical frame with a spiritual dimension to it. In the age of reason, we expected it to kind of come down into the human frame where death was usually the end the point end. of the story. Yep. In the modern frame, it's all sort of turned inwards where it's actually your experience that's like death, hence my thesis, is, is more the shape of the ending in you. It's like your ending psychologically or emotionally. So is that then connected perhaps to something in human nature that we're wired in some sense for a sense of ending? Well, I think so. I mean, in, in Ecclesiastes in the Bible, there's, there's a, a section there that talks about God placing eternity in the heart of human beings, but not knowing how to attain it, not knowing how to get it, not knowing where it is. And I think the Christian kind of response to that view is that that yearning can find a fulfilment in the story of Jesus Christ as the kind of where history is going is, is built into, into Jesus' story. So that's the Christian kind of uh, understanding so is, of that. Is that a satisfactory... To me, so it is explanation um, for the for that sense. To me, it's a very satisfying one. I think, but all, all religions that I've studied, at least, have some shaping, some eschatological shaping. The idea that history is heading somewhere, either to an endpoint or to a cycle, that we are responsible now for how we live because of what will happen in the future, either a judgment or a reincarnation or something like that, that we're part of this bigger unfolding story that's going somewhere. And in fact, when religions stop believing that, they start to turn into philosophies. For example, I think Buddhism starts to turn into a philosophy yeah. when it stops being shaped by that kind of historical sense that, that's there, that we're going to be going somewhere. So how does that then interplay with the modern secular notion that the universe is pointless and meaningless? Yeah, well, I just think not many people believe that. <laughs> that's a, and that's the some, interesting... But leading scientists, etc., do assert that, well, the universe is pointless, it's meaningless, so just yes. make, you know, be happy, so to speak. Yes, so, yes. So you think that that's, that's unsatisfying? Uh, some of them do. Maybe, I don't know, maybe half of them do have that view. Half of them definitely don't. Um, and I was fascinated to hear Brian Cox on a Q&A not so long ago being asked this question, the God question, that sort of gets asked to every poor scientist out there now that, you know, tell us what you know about God. And hang on, I've, I've only been studying particle physics all my life. <laughs> but right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you're asking me about God, okay. Um, and his answer was fantastic. It was basically, I don't think we know. 
from a scientist's point of view, I don't think we know. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was I thought that was a wonderful way of being humble about the about the question of where it's all headed. Maybe it's pointless, he was saying. But from a from a scientist's point of view, I don't think I can make that call. Was was pretty much where he was right. he was going. But but I think the human experience resists that idea of pointlessness at pretty much every turn. It can be expressed philosophically, dilettantishly. You can hold on to it desperately if you want to, that everything is pointless. But pretty much every fibre of your being resists that mm. in the way you live your life. Unless you get to the point where, say, you're depressed or something intervenes to make life feel pointless. And then, I, then I've got incredible sympathy for you because it's like something has disturbed that sense of eternity in your heart mm. to make you feel like everything is pointless. Mm. But the evidence doesn't irrevocably lead in the direction that things are pointless. Mm. So there's plenty of room there for people to move. So why do you think that God would wire a sense of the ending into us? Well, I, I, as a Christian, I think that is, that is the story, that, um, that a creator God has an unfolding plan for the creation that has been made that is really interesting to him, that um, some of which we know, a lot of which we don't, and we get the exciting role to play in seeing how it pans out. Mm. I think it's, it's to draw people towards God and to generate that spark, that kind of thing that Patrick White was looking for really, that sense of the divine and it being important and hopefully leading you into an inquiry that's lifelong and satisfying mm. about what that God is like. Well, the Bible itself deals with some of these ultimate questions and the book of the Bible which deals with the end of the world in the most thoroughgoing way is perhaps the, the book of Revelation. Mm. Uh, this book describes, using picture language, sort of the end of the world. Mm. Uh, in the middle of the book, in chapter 11, there's a vision which involves seven angels. In verse 15, we learn that the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, Greg, you think that this is a summary of sort of biblical eschatology? So, so what, does this, what does this say yeah. about the future? I do. I do like this verse, and it's always hard to pull out a verse from somewhere and you know, understand like what Revelation. it's doing. That's right. That's right. And Revelation is just such a wonderful uh, book, you know, in, in full of symbolism. It's written in largely apocalyptic literature, which is a kind of form of writing in a symbolic manner and a shocking kind of science fiction manner that really gets people's attention. And uh, a sidebar, I I uh, just had the opportunity to be in Ephesus in Turkey, which was a just great privilege. And um, someone pointed out to me as we were standing on a hill there that, you know, if you look across the ocean there, that's where Patmos was, where John is recorded as writing his revelation it's just such a wonderful moment of bringing literature to life when you mm. go okay that's that's the origin of the story here and i think you know in his exile on on patmos uh, he's you know recorded as having a vision that includes this this kind of this language kind of, stuff, yeah, yeah. of a seventh trumpet sounding in the heavens like the end of all things is a, is a coming upon us yeah and the declaration of the voices from heaven which is like a summary of where we're trying to get to is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth have come together. And I think this is a great summary of the unfolding plan that, that God seems to have for the universe, is that the, the world would become a kind of place where God could dwell, a place where the divine and the human could find their perfect unity, and that it's shaped around Jesus Christ and him being the expression of the divine on earth 
and then the fulfillment of God's plans to restore justice, something we can't go into in a few seconds, but that, that's the, the shape of the, the Christian story, that he comes to restore justice and then to be the figure of, the figure of veneration and honour into eternity when the earth is finally a place where the divine can dwell in peace and harmony. And uh, that, to me, is just a great summary of where things are headed. So that's, the, in some respects, the biblical answer to where the story ends. I think that's the, the place that all of us in our deepest hearts would love to get to. Sure. Questions come in from our text line from our live audience here, uh, which says, which is the way the world ends, bang or whimper? Ah, uh-huh, nice, nice. Well, uh, I can't answer as a scientist, so I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, and I know there are different views on that. But I think a biblical answer is with a party. So there's probably more bangs at the party than the whimpers, <laughs> but if it's a good party. Because yeah, yeah. The, the, the vision of heaven and earth coming together is like a feast. It's, like a, it's actually described as like a wedding feast. Yeah. It's meant to be this wonderful time of unity and celebration and finally the plan has all come about and we're not crying, we're not suffering, we're actually just here celebrating. So, yeah, a party. Mm. So, Greg, you've spent a lot of time thinking about death, the end times, etc. So how has it affected you and your personal view of the end of the story? I think it's, I've kept that focus that I had from university days that on the ultimate, the bigger questions. The bigger questions. Just to give you a free plug. Um, <laughs> and, and that's been a great blessing to me. Um, it means that some of the smaller problems in life that emerge and some of the smaller disappointments can pass by faster when you're kind of focused on the bigger questions. And I think the other thing is I've come to see that the hope of the resurrection is really the thing to keep focusing on. Yeah. That um, just like St Paul said, like without the resurrection of Jesus, Christians you know, have a vain hope. Um, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave and provide a pathway beyond the grave for those who believe in him, it's a vain hope. Um, so, so I put my eggs in that basket that the resurrection gives me a reason to think that the travails of this life are temporary yep. and that the end point is a party, that, that we're going to somewhere where you know, people will feel a great sense of satisfaction mm. and a great sense of fulfilment, that God didn't abandon the world but he had a plan all along. Mm. That's satisfying for you? Deeply satisfying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Greg, how does the story end? <laughs> the story ends with a multitude of people who feel that their lives were worthwhile, that they were loved, their sins were forgiven, and that their future is bright. And the reason they feel this is because Jesus Christ has embodied all of that for us. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. How does the story end from Revelation 11:15? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dr. Greg Clark. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.